I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about Waverly Country Club in Portland, Oregon, with Waverly Superintendent Brian Koffler. Waverly is, in my opinion, the best course in Portland. And this week, it's hosting the U.S. Senior Women's Open. You can catch coverage of the tournament on Saturday and Sunday on Peacock and Golf Channel. I would say set your DVRs. This is a special event, the U.S. Senior Women's Open. And it's a rare opportunity to see Waverly on broadcast TV. The last time you could have seen it, I believe, was in the year 2000 at the U.S. Women's Amateur. Tiger Woods also won one of his U.S. Junior Amateurs here in 1993, but I don't believe that was on TV. Waverly is best understood as a Chandler Egan design, and it was restored by Gil Hance in 2012. It's just a beautiful, elegant course right on the banks of the Willamette River, so make sure to check it out this weekend. Brian Koffler is, as I said, the superintendent at Waverly, and he's a really smart, personable guy with an extremely impressive resume, which we'll dig into a bit in this episode. All right. So after this break, you'll hear from Brian Koffler at Waverly Country Club. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast is brought to you by Toro. For more than a century, with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at ToroGolf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Brian Koffler, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I, I am I'm doing great. We're uh, in the midst of advance week uh, for the uh, U.S. Senior Women's Open. So I've uh, been here a few hours this week, but uh, all, in, all in due course. Yeah. Well, to give people an idea, we're recording this on the Thursday before the U.S. Senior Women's Open at Waverly Country Club. This podcast will come out Monday or Tuesday of next week. So Waverly Country Club, I think a lot of people out there probably don't know much about this course. It's been a while since it hosted a televised championship, really. So maybe you could just start by describing the piece of land that this course sits on, because that's like a big, big deal here. Like what is an incredible piece of land? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things um, when we renovated the golf course that really opened uh, to people's eyes was the just the variability uh, of the topography, um, the landforms. It's obviously on the east bank of the Willamette River. Um, you kind of have this one piece of the golf course that stretches out, jets out east, which has just a four back-to-back-to-back holes um, that kind of just run back and forth east-west. Um, and then you kind of work your way back to the clubhouse and then the back nine is on, on the, the river side of the property. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an unusual piece of land within Portland and that it does have some physical topography to it. Um, and being right along the banks of the river, it's just an unbelievable setting. Um, and as I mentioned, when we were able to take out, I think it was 375 trees, it, it, it gave you views of the, of the river from other parts of the golf course that you couldn't see before. And that was one of Gil's major pitches on the whole, the whole process was you can go anywhere in the Pacific Northwest and play a tree line golf course. You can do it all over the place, but really there aren't that many golf courses along the banks of the Willamette that, that, uh, really showcase the property as they do. It's incredible. I had the drone up a couple of mornings ago and as soon as I put it up, I was looking at the golf course and I turned the drone around and suddenly there's the bridges and the city of Portland right there in the distance, right down the right. river. Yeah. So you're, uh, the, the location 
really couldn't be much better for the Portland area. A piece of land like this wouldn't be available to a modern golf course. No, and I think, you know, when they they moved out here in eight, the club was founded in 1896. They moved out here in 1898, but they owned a bigger piece of property that involved this neighborhood uh, kind of to the northeast of us. And so, you know, through selling that piece of property to generate some funds to do some other stuff, they ended up with this property probably in 1910 has been kind of uh, the format in which it is. Um, so yeah, it's, it would be impossible to, to do this. And you think about back in the day when it was truly a country club, there was a rail line that came out from the city. And so people, there's some people that had second homes up in this, uh, neighborhood up above the clubhouse that it was truly a country club. It was out it's maybe five miles as a crow flies from downtown, but you know, before the advent of automobiles and stuff, it, you didn't, you didn't just jump on out here. Which is kind of comical because one of the challenges now for us is that as people spread out over the city and into different neighborhoods and traffic just has notoriously gotten worse and worse over the years as people moved into Portland, um, it it changed our usage a lot. You know, members, you almost had to make an effort to come out here and people, you know, when there were bridges under construction or whatever the case was. So it's been interesting as far as member usage of the club. Mm. Uh, well, could you give me the basics of the architectural history here? Once the club moved to this piece of land, which yep. it wasn't always on from from the beginning. Correct. You know, this club dates way back to the the late 19th century. Yep. But um, when it moved to this piece of land, what basically happened to it? Which architects were involved? That kind of stuff. So um, Jack Moffat would have been, I'll say, the first guy that would have, I'll say, had a name. Um he was the golf pro here. Uh, he, I think, threw together a layout in the early 1900s. I don't think he was involved in 1898. I'm not sure they had some sort of rudimentary layout. So Jack Moffat would have been the first one. It's not like he's designed anything else. He was just the golf pro here at the time, which happened a lot back pretty, in the pretty day. Pretty common. Yeah, in absolutely. That yeah. Um, one of the interesting things that we found out through this most recent history book, we just had a 125th anniversary book put together, which was a great fact-finding mission um, they hired John to St. Jor, who obviously has written a ton of great books over the years on history of golf clubs and, you know, through it, it's so easy now to research old Oregonian articles, all of these things, you can just look them up on the computer and then find the article. So we're able to, I'll say, I'll go back in 2011, 12, when we were going to renovate the golf course, we always thought H. Chandler Egan got involved from the get go. That's who designed it in 1912. Well, then you start doing a little bit of homework on, well, he really, he bought this orchard down in Medford in 1911. You're like, well, he's not going to be driving a car up here. So he had to take the train and he really just moved to the area. So by how, how would he have by May of 1912 finished a design and opened it up? So uh, long story short, we went back and found a few, two or three mentions of H.H. Barker um, being in the Northwest and coming to Waverly Country Club. So we're fairly certain he laid out some of the elements of the golf course in, I'll say the 19, probably, I think he was in 09. Mm-hmm. But this is Herbert, Herbert Barker. Yes. Is so his first name, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think he was the, I want to say the golf pro at, at Atlantic city or Arcola at the time. Right. Right? I think not, he, not somebody I had heard of before. Chandler Egan is, is very well known to anybody who studies golf on the West coast. He was in charge of the 1928, 29 Pebble beach, renovation that they did that's so eye-catching he designed the the first nine at pacific grove golf links as well as a number of courses in the pacific northwest yes but herbert barker comes as a bit of a surprise they're like okay there he is yeah exactly i mean it was one of those where you kind of wonder what he was doing in town You, you know would we have really solicited him to come out usually if if stuff like that happens it goes back to like the 1905 um exposition where um, Olmstead brothers came out. Well, they did a series of parks in Portland, Seattle, Spokane. So they kind of took advantage of being on the West coast where HH H. Barker, I don't really know much else that he did. He probably visited a couple other golf clubs and consulted, but I, I really don't know the history behind why he was even out here. Um, the layout that he put together, there was a green, I think it was the third green is roughly where 18 is. But then the fourth tee is kind of where the clubhouse is. And it went out into the area that was the driving range before it was turned into a polo field. So we're fairly confident in 1909 to 1911, that was kind of the layout he put together. I think they used a lot of those holes for the 1912 layout because the uh, the clubhouse was built in 1913. So they'd kind of had the 12 layout is 
the configuration that you see now or that we play now. Um, so Egan came in probably in like 13, 14, started as a consulting architect. There's a lot of stuff through the teens that, you know, we have Oregonian articles and pictures and stuff, not of him necessarily, but mentions of him uh, doing that work. He he was a consulting architect. I'm going to guess through, I think he passed away in the 30s, late 30s, I think. Um, and then you kind of go through every known name in the Pacific Northwest. You know, McCann was the consulting architect here. I want to say in the fifties, I believe he was the one that turned 17, which is a a massive two tiered green. It's 9,500 square feet or something. But before he was the architect, uh, that was, you know, the bottom half of the green was the only part. And then he added the top half. Um, and then you get into the sixties through the nineties and it's Robert Muir Graves. Um, John Harbottle. John Harbottle was the last one prior to Gill. Um, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, Bob Robinson, which is not Ted, but the other one who's done some work, good work in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, yeah. He did all the mounding, the old mounding that we took out, but mounding man greens and he redid the putting green. So it's, it had been kind of an architectural mismatch over the years, kind of all the way through um, Harbottle. And I, I don't necessarily think to be fair to John I don't think they necessarily asked him to go and renovate the whole thing and, and do a complete overhaul of it. I think it was more, hey, we want to take a look at this hole. We don't like this about it. Can you solve that problem? Um, and so by the time I got here in 2010 and they kind of said, hey, let's they were coincidentally just reserving money for an irrigation system. They said, well, if we're going to do that, should we talk to somebody about doing some work to the golf course? And that was kind of the impetus for that process to start. Nice. So we're going to get to that restoration in a minute because you were you were here during it gil hans performed the work and it turned the course into what it is now a really terrific course and a good reflection of i would say probably the egan design at this course but first i mean just to give people an idea of what the course is like and what they should be looking for what are some of the holes that you think that they'll actually you know film that will stand out to people so there's uh, I believe the live coverage is going to be three hours each day. And so they'll pick up my understanding is they'll pick up the coverage on like six or seven, six is a downhill par three surrounded by bunkers. Um, you know, 79, they're, they're all quality golf holes. Uh, seven is kind of a weird green. So depending on it's, it's probably six foot of rise from back to front or front to back, I should say. It's huge. So, too. Yeah, it's like, a, it's a big green. It's 7,800 square feet. And so, depending on the whole location, it can dramatically change how they play that hole and the distance to it, obviously. Um, eight and nine, you know, eight's the longest hole in the golf course. Long par five kind of gets you back towards the clubhouse. Nine is a super short par three with a, a big, deep fronting bunker. Uh, and then you kind of get to the, I consider tough stretch of golf holes, 10, 11, 12. 10's a, I think they're playing it at 375, but it's back into the prevailing wind. 11 is small screen on the golf course. It's a kind of a sh- little bit of an elevated green, but I think they're playing at 140 some yards and it's, it's a small green. It's got a huge false front. It's just, it's tough to, and these gals are awesome. Obviously they, they'll probably handle it very easily, but uh, if you're longer the pin on 11, you're probably <laughs> going to be off the front of the green right. playing three. And so, yeah, that's usually the, I think most people, if you're going to, if you're going to miss it, miss it short because if you miss it long, you're going to be short after the second one. So uh, 12 is uh, another longish par four into the prevailing wind uphill. Um, And then you kind of get into some, a little better scoring opportunities. 13 is a massively downhill par five. It's 490, I think for the championship. Um, 14, 15 neat golf holes, but nothing special. And then kind of the three finishing holes, 16 is a big downhill uh, punch bowl, concept hole where you're playing dead at the river and then 17 18 and we talked about this the other day that they're both back-to-back par five finishing holes uh they're both playing in the same direction so you got both downwind but they're very different golf holes so when you stand on the tee on 17 you have to think about where you're going to place your drive there's there's bunkers that kind of hem in it on the left and there's a, a center line bunker kind of shading the right half of the fairway and then you've got the hazard the willamette river to the right and 18 is you can step on a whale on it. I mean, your only threat is if you miss it right, the the landform kind of feeds down into the river um, and that ground's pretty dry usually. And so 
but they're just great finishing holes. You know, the distance that they're going to play 18 at the, the main tee is 499. I, I don't know how many of these gals will try to get there in two, but, uh, you know, par fives always are somewhat dramatic towards, towards the finishing holes and great opportunity for something to happen. What I like about 17 and 18 is that both are gettable, I guess, you know, reachable. I don't know, depends on the player, but in order to put yourself in a position to reach those greens and two, you have to take on a little bit of risk on the drives, you yeah. know, cause 18 kind of has this higher left side of the fairway and a lower right side of the fairway. If you manage to get your drive to the lower right side, which is of course closer to the river, then you have a better opportunity to go for the green and two on 17. The right side of the fairway is pretty heavily guarded by that centerline bunker that you mentioned as well as obviously the Willamette River to the right. And so it's a lot safer to go out to the left, but out to the left is a little bit of a worse opportunity to go for the green in two. And so if you really want to attack those holes, you have to take on some risk on the tee shot. And it's uh, so they're both pretty neat in that way. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see. And and I, I've watched each of these championships or this event in the last couple of years. I didn't watch all the coverage, but one of the interesting things is, is it's the field. It's 122 players, I believe. And the field, or maybe it's 120, sorry. Uh, it's, there's kind of a, a big discrepancy in driving distance, which presents an, a unique challenge of setting up the golf course. Um, and so I think you've got, like I said, just a huge discrepancy. And so it'll be interesting to see how many of them can get there in two on some of these par fives. Um, so we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, that that will be cool that uh the differences between the players cuz I I had the opportunity to play with Jill McGill at the media day, which was incredible. She's the she's the defending champion. That was a real privilege. She smashes the ball. Really? Like, yeah, rocks it. Um she's very athletic, plays tennis competitively and yeah, she she smashes the ball. And so I would imagine that, you know, she may be at sort of the the higher end of driving distance and then You'll have some players who are who are kind of bunting it out there a little bit more, but obviously scoring in different ways. And I think this is a course that's pretty, you know, well set up to deal with differences in, in driving distances. There, there's a lot of holes where you don't necessarily really want to want to bomb it. I'm I'm kind of going through them in my well, mind. It's like seven is probably the best example where they're going to play from about 370 and some of the longer hitters, there's the the fair was canted pretty heavily right to left and it feeds into that big deep bunker on the left side. Well, if you're a shorter hitter, you probably aren't going to get into that much trouble there. But if you're a longer hitter, your ball's either going to carry them kind of over to that left side, or if you can clear it to the top of the ridge, there's a bunker up the right side that you could probably get into. So to your point, if you're a longer hitter, there's probably, there are certain places where you're going to get into trouble um, where the shorter hitters won't. And so it has its advantages, obviously, whether you'd want, in a bunker or you're hitting a four iron in when you have a unique field like this how does it inform your presentation of the course do you do anything different here than you would for say a u.s amateur if it came here you know it was it was interesting we had a green committee meeting last week and we just kind of went you know it was just a debrief of what what to expect and all that fun stuff and i it dawned on me before the meeting and you just process things in different ways i said i told the committee this is a very rare championship where they're really going to play it as the members do green speeds are not going to be anything over the top. Um, they're obviously this level of championship. They weren't going to ask us to build a new set of tees way back. They didn't move any bunkers, anything like that. There were a very few, I'm trying to think of any mowing line changes. Um, there weren't any fairway mowing line changes or runouts around greens. Um, there's some height of cut stuff on the edges of, um, greens and fairways that we're going to change. But for the most part, they're going to see it and they're going to play it as it's presented to the membership, which is unique. You don't see that at, at championships very often, uh, especially the open ones. This is, um, so I, I felt like that, that was just kind of a unique perspective for our members to play it that way and see how they're going to play it. So there are some greens out here with a significant amount of tilt. Mm -hmm. I bet that'll be a talking point about the course that you have fast greens and you have some greens that are are really on an angle and they really kind of flow with the land. Yeah. And in a lot of places, the land is, is pretty tilted here. So I'm thinking like three, six, seven, 11. 10, 11. 11. Yeah. yeah. Three, six, seven, and 11 are our always 
those are most talked about. There is, it's interesting. Those are always the ones when we talk about green speeds, and this is always a controversial topic that one of the challenges is if we were to go much faster than we do, and we, our greens aren't screaming by any stretch of imagination. There are clubs around town that probably have greens day to day faster than ours. But if we want to take them to 12, 12 and a half, you just start losing legitimate hole locations and you start funneling and concentrating traffic into places where it agronomically doesn't do you any good. And so it'll be interesting to see historically that is the defense of this golf course. It's not a long golf course. We couldn't, I think tipped out might be able to get to 6,700, barely to 6,700. They're going to play it. I think roughly around six to 6,100, but the defense of the golf course has always been the putting surfaces. They're, they're very unique, very challenging. And to your point, those four will probably be talked about uh, for anybody that hasn't played here for sure. Well, you know, when you have putting surfaces that are that tilted and then others that are more on a flat grade, you know, most of the greens out here have some internal contour and some interest in them, but there are greens that are sitting on more flat pieces of land as a superintendent. Like how do you figure out green speed when you have that, that kind of variety? I mean, we, we have these conversations at the green committee level that we have a charter that dictates, Hey, we want green speeds to be X. And we have those conversations of, Hey, if you want to go much, there are greens that we could go way faster. Um, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't be problematic. Number 12 is a good example. It's a large green that there's plenty of coupable space. Um, it wouldn't be difficult to get that thing faster, but, um, there was my first year it was probably one of the least intelligent things I've ever done. But my first year, really struggling with hole locations on number 11. And this was before the renovation. And so there were the false front just came further into the green. So there are fewer couple spaces. And I thought, well, to create more, to create more hole locations, we'll just not roll that or not mow that certain days. Like we process everything else. And the Waverly members are uber kind. Like they're, they're not the type to complain about anything or jack you up about stuff. And the guy kind of gave me an earful that, you know, that green is dramatically slower and you need to like, if you're going to do that, you need to like post a sign saying this green's going to be slower. And that, that was really stupid. I don't know why I did that. And so typically, you know, it's not in your best interest, in anybody's best interest to have putting services that are rolling different speeds. I mean, true reason the stint mirrors created was to equalize it between greens. Um, so yeah, I think we have the conversation at the green committee level of what do we feel is appropriate? And, you know, obviously the off season is very different than the core of the golf season, but once you kind of set, settle on something and agree to it, that's our job to try to keep it there. We've had some pretty wild fluctuations in weather here in the Pacific Northwest lately. Yeah. Um, just this week, temperatures got up into the hundreds, yeah. which is uh, historically unusual. So we've got some planetary conditions that are affecting things, but even in good times, you get a lot of variety of weather in the Pacific Northwest. So what are some of the challenges and some of the solutions with regard to growing grass here? So yeah, the, the big challenge in the last two years are, are a great uh, example of this, that last year it was one of the wettest springs we'd had. And it, I swear it rained until June 15th or 20th, pretty consistently. So we weren't having any issues, we weren't turning irrigation on anything like that, but it immediately went from rain to I think by the end of the one week, it was 95 and the wind's just howling and, and you're, you know, turf started starting to peel back. So when you, when you have those issues, the, if there's no moderation in that spring dry down, well, your roots really don't, your plant doesn't have to go and get roots because it hasn't been stressed at all. And so you have an artificially shallow root system, which POA doesn't need any help with in that respect. It's already shallow enough. And so last year, that time when it, the, the moisture tap shut off was, I'll say mid to late June. Well, this year it happened about the 10th or 15th of May this year. And so we really, we had, I think it was on May 8th or 10th. We had an inch and a quarter of rain in about 45 minutes, which is really rare for us. We don't get storms like that very often. I'm sure it probably ran from here over your house uh, out in that general direction. Yeah. And so it, we don't get storms like that very often, but that was, I'll say an inch and a quarter in early May. We've had, I think, 15 hundredths of an inch of rain since then, and now we're three months after that. So it's been, it has been a challenge. You're relying on your irrigation system. You're relying upon, you know, members understanding. And the, the club is, 
if anything, they would rather have me dry it down even further. They're not a green is great club. They, they really do like it brown around the edges, firm, fast. It, and that's great. And they're very understanding of kind of turf loss. Well, when you get to a year like this, where you're going to have a televised event and we've just been taking fewer and fewer chances this year, we're not running greens at huge speeds. We're not drying down fairways like we normally would. So it's just kind of, this has been an anomaly this year, as far as presentation goes, where we're as green as we've ever been, um, this time of year, usually we're kind of, which is only going to be ironic because if somebody listens to this and then they see an even on TV, they're like, all the areas between the holes are dead. Like they're all just dormant. There's a lot of dormant grass out there, but this is greener than we normally are, um, in the fairways and kind of immediately off the fairways. It is a, a firm golf course, which is a re- relative rarity in this area. Most golf courses up here tend to be pretty soggy, um, even through some of the summer months. So, uh, we're getting weather conditions now that make it seem like by the time the championship comes around, things will be running out nicely. Do you, do you have that sense? Yeah, I think that's been the topic of conversation um, with both Shannon, who sets up the golf course, and then Corey, our, our agronomist, is we want to start the start the week with the tank full. Like we're and we're there. We're we're plenty healthy. Um, and then dry the golf course down as we get through it. You know, sh- you know, Shannon had made a comment about, we don't want you to make any, we don't want to make any decisions that are going to compromise turf health long-term. You know, they don't want the impression that you came into town and they leave and you're left with a dead golf course. That's, that's not their intention at all. But at the same time, golf courses are firm and faster. They're more exacting from a challenge standpoint. They, they're going to require better shot making, um, there's not a ton of dog legs on this golf course, but you know, the firmer you are, they can run through angles and all that fun stuff. So yeah, I think we're, we're set up really, really well, um, heading in. I think this is kind of the last really hot day. They're throwing some maybe mid nineties back in on Sunday, but the week of the championship looks, you know, mid to low eighties, which is, is great. Uh, that kind of sets up nicely for it. One thing I'm hoping to see is some players running the ball into the green on 16. The yes. par three, there is a nice little kicker slope. Yeah. Short right of that green. And, uh, you know, if it's uh, if it's rolling out, we could see some pretty fun little low shots going in there. I, I know there's no guarantees that anybody can make that it's going to get there. But there are contours like that on this course that really come alive. Absolutely. When it is firm. Yeah. And that's a, that's an interesting one you bring up because we we get that a little bit from a few members here and there that there's a, there's an upslope right in front of the green, just from a drainage standpoint, you, they had to do, they had to elevate the green a little bit. Well, as you mentioned, there's playing from the, I'll say the, the blue tees, 215 yards. I think at about 150 yards off the tee, there's the starts of the downslope and it's maybe a 15, 20 yard downslope. Well, ironically, the players that we see have the most success with that hole are the guys that drive the ball. 165 yards and they just land it perfectly. They get the momentum and it's gone. That makes sense. And so they're, they use more of the slope. Yes. And so there are a lot of better players and, you know, we're never going to be perfectly firm where it's going to hop up and up slope. And, you know, we could always be firmer. I get that. But that is one of the, the criticisms is if they hit, you know, a good player from 215, I don't know what they're hitting a five iron, a six iron. Well, the ball flight, the hole is, probably 25, 30 feet downhill. If you're hitting off of an elevated tee position and you're hitting the ball high and it checks into that slope, it, it, it does create some criticism. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, but then the other challenge is that if you get it to the front edge and you get a big hop off the green, it goes through the green and there's no real middle ground there. But yeah, that it is funny. We see, um, we'll call them uh, life experienced members that uh, don't drive the balls far anymore. And, you know, they have great success with that golf hole, just using the intended uh, concept of the hole. Some of the younger people need to learn how to, how to do a bunt driver, you know, that would, <laughs> I tried the I last time I played, I try, I was trying to do it with a uh, hybrid and it failed miserably. And, you know, <laughs> you, you, I'm, I'm a 14 handicap, so it's not, and not a maintained handicap. That's probably from the last like five years of scores. It still is 14. So yeah, yeah it, it, it didn't go as planned. The shot wasn't in your arsenal. No. Yeah. Not really in mine either. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast is brought to you by Toro. 
Americans like our utility vehicles the way we like our U.S. Open courses. Rugged. A winner needs to do it all, in tough conditions. And Toro's new Workman UTX line is here to get the job done. Any job. Snow and ice removal, tree maintenance, transporting equipment or materials. Whatever you need, this commercial-grade, smooth-riding, four-wheel-drive monster has your back. The Workman UTX's proprietary governing system unpairs ground speed and RPM, so the owner can limit the machine's speed without gutting the power. Higher RPMs when more oomph is required, less RPMs and less fuel consumption when it isn't. That kind of all-around performance is what champions are made of. Follow at ToroGolf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. So let's talk a little bit about your career. You have a very simple and very impressive resume. You were the assistant superintendent at Olympic Club for a couple of years, then the superintendent there until 2010 when you moved to Waverly. Mm-hmm. Before you were at the Olympic Club, you also had some pretty incredible experiences. So what were what were some of those? Yeah, so I, um, I went to school at Oregon State and... I was originally a pharmacy major. So for the first two years, I thought I was going to be a pharmacist and realized I'm not that great of a student. And they had changed the coursework, so it was going to take too long. So I uh, told my parents one summer, I said, I'm going to change my major. So I went back. They tried to talk me out of it, but I went back uh, to school fall of my junior year. And when you change your major after your sophomore year, you run risk of probably not getting out of there on time. And when I... I was going to be able to graduate in four years and a quarter, but at that point I would have had two, three month jobs under my belt. I feel I'm not real marketable at that point. So went to the, uh, the main advisor, Tom Cook, who ran the turf program and said, Hey, you know, what do you think about maybe taking a year off and going down to California or something and working a couple places? So he gave me two guys numbers, uh, Tim Putnam, who was at Ironwood at the time now is at La Quinta and uh, Tom Huskin, who was uh, both Oregon State grads and Tom Huskin, who was at Pebble. So I called him and, I, you know, I grew up in Eastern Oregon in a very small town. I knew what Pebble Beach was. You know, I'd watched, you know, TV, all that fun stuff uh, and was shocked when he got back to me. I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. We can host you as an intern. So I went down there for six months and uh, Jack Holt, who was a longtime assistant there. I think he sensed that I probably needed to be toughened up a little bit. Um, and Mark Michaud had been the superintendent there. Uh, from 92 to 99, he said, you know, you, you should probably go back East and just kind of challenge yourself a little bit. Well, Mashad had moved on to Shinnecock. So now this is 2002, March of 2002. So I went back to Shinnecock, um, and did six months back there, which, you know, like I said, I, am a small town, East, uh, Eastern Oregon kid. That was an eye opener. Um, just both agronomically, uh, you know, from a social standpoint, the Hamptons, like I had no concept of what that was really. And so it was just, it was very interesting, but it was, it was awesome. I learned a ton, you know, that was probably the most extensive, I'll say staff I'd been on as far as guys with degrees and, uh, just base of knowledge. It, it was, it was an awesome experience, but I realized I'm not, I love the industry, but I'm not going to do it on these coasts. Like it's just, it's a very different world back there. Um, so I'm going to come back, finish that one last quarter of school. Um, both uh, Tom Huskin and Mashad were good friends with Jeff Marco and just happened. Jeff uh, at Cyprus was posted a, a spray tech job and so applied for it and was fortunate enough to uh, to get that job. And I wish I would have stuck around longer. Jeff was awesome to work with. Obviously, Cy- Cypress Point's an incredible place. Um, uh, stayed there for 10, 11 months, I think, and then took the job up at the Olympic club, a guy that I had worked with at Pebble was an ass- assistant at, uh, on one of the two courses of the Olympic club. And Pat had gotten there I'm trying to think Pat got there. And I think in February of two, and I came up in October of three. So he hadn't been there more than a year and a half. And it, it was a very, it, it was an awesome time to get there. I was 25 years old. So, uh, super naive and it was a union staff. So they taught me a lot about patience to say the least. Um, but it was, yeah, I've had, I it was just, telling before this that I've probably blown all my professional karma, if you will. Um, been very, very fortunate to work for a lot of great guys um, at a lot of neat facilities. That's for sure. Pebble, Shinnecock and Cypress. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was that's, awesome. That's pretty decent. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Three top 10 golf courses. So um, Olympic club, 
just looking at the aerials from the time that you were there. Now, I'm not saying that you personally did nope. <laughs> all of this uh, work, went out and took out those trees by the roots yourself, but quite a few trees came out at the Olympic Club during your tenure there, which was mostly in the first decade of the of the 2000s. So, you know, I'm curious when it comes to a club like that, which prides itself on difficulty and for a long time was identified with this idea of a tree-lined championship golf course what's it like to be involved in taking out trees there yeah i'm it's funny because you know you think about it when you get there when you're 25 and you think you know what you're doing and and you think you know a lot about the intricacies of what's going on and politically how it goes goes about um but you realize you're just a dumb kid at that point and you're trying to figure it out um i would say some of it was for agronomic reasons that um, I'm just thinking between two and four, um, there were a gazillion eucalyptus trees up there that were taken out for good reason. They were just kind of a trash tree. Um, some of it totally agreed. Thank you for saying that eucalyptus trees drive me nuts as a native Californian. Just they're, they're all over the place. They don't belong there. Thank they're, goodness. Yeah. They're <laughs> they dirty. They, yeah, they, they just <laughs> they shed all over the yeah. place too. Like they're, they're a, they're a danger. If you stay in under one for yeah, too long, they're yeah. going to. They're going to get you. And it's, yeah, they're, they're not, they're not great. Um, and, and so I would say, you know, there was some of that and then, but then you look at the, the, I'll say the population of the rest of the golf course or the, the tree canopy was, you know, it's a lot of Monterey pines and a lot of Monterey, Monterey cypress trees and the Monterey cypress trees. A lot of those that were lost during storms were, they were, they weren't necessarily taken care of for a series of years. And so they weren't thinned out and they, they just were so heavy and such big kites, basically, that they just fell over, uprooted. So a little bit of loss there. Um, but then the Monterey Pines were the ones that really were, I'll say, the the larger of the group that, that came out. That um, they just weren't very healthy trees. They kind of died from the crown down. Um, I was telling you before we started the podcast that the 07 Amateur, so before, they used to do them with flyovers with helicopters. And so... Pat let me uh, go up for a couple of holes in the helicopter. And, and we always knew these, these trees were not super healthy. You could kind of see them dying back and they just needles turning colors. And then you get up in a helicopter on top of them. And you're like, Oh, these are a lot worse than I thought. Like there's a lot of just dead canopies in the tops of these trees. So, uh, a lot of them were just, they would uproot, they would just die and you'd have to take them out. So yeah, there was some active nature to taking trees out, but at the same time, a lot of it was natural attrition during storms or whatever the case is. Yeah. So it became a little bit easier uh, from from that perspective to, uh, you know, kind of gradually maybe change ideas about trees at the club. That's uh, that's it's a good model for a, for a lot of clubs. You know, yeah. you, you kind of do it over time. You don't have to do it all at once. Correct. And I would say, you know, somewhat similar to this that at Waverly that the Pacific Northwest is right, wrong, or different. They love their trees and we have a ton of them and they're beautiful. I get it, but you really struggle on a lot of levels from a, both a playability and agronomic standpoint when you have huge tree canopies. And that was one of the things that Gil, you know, we knew that was going to be an uphill climb, um, but he is, he's so good at talking with members, very patient and can explain that these are the reasons you don't want these. And the, it was comical because there were people that were fighting us tooth and nail at the beginning of this process. And, and there weren't that many people. It really was. There was a few people, but by the end of the process, they were coming up with ideas of trees to remove. And so you're like, okay, I think we finally turned the corner on this, that, that everybody's seeing the, the benefits from a visibility and playability standpoint to, uh, to opening up this property. So it, it was a lot of fun. So you bring up the Gil Hans restoration you started here around 2010, mm -hmm. which is around the same time that Gil was hired and, and yep. maybe started his work a year or two later. Yep. So take me through that process. What was the scope of the work that Gil did and what were some of the, the main accomplishments of it? So I, I started here March 1 of 2010. I think Gil's first site visit was in April. So a month and month and a half later, okay. something like that. Yeah. Um, he, and I don't know if he does this on every job, I, I believe on most of his restorations, but he does them in six hole increments. So 
first one, he comes out, looks at six holes. He's looking at the whole property, but he formulates the ideas on his next trip out. He presents those six holes to the committee, looks at the next six and so on and so forth. And so by the third trip, when he's formulating ideas on the, on the, uh, I'll say 13 through 18, he's kind of presenting a finalized idea of one of finalized idea of one through six. Um, so it was, we had a committee, a subcommittee of the green committee. That was the master plan committee. It was very thoughtful. Gil, he wouldn't, he's great at what he does. Wouldn't be as, as popular as he was, uh, or is if, if he wasn't really good at it. And, uh, yeah, he just was able to very thoughtfully walk people through what we had and how much better it could be. Um, there were when I wasn't involved in the interview process cause it was prior to my starting, but there were four, they interviewed four architects and I won't say the other three, but three of the four all said, Hey, if you don't want to restore this, I'm probably not your guy. There was one uh, group that proposed a $10 million blow up and it was changing the routing and, you know, 7,100 yards kind of a deal. Um, and the club didn't have a, you know, a great taste for doing that. So, um, yeah, came in, let's see, we started in August of 11, uh, with some mainline work on the irrigation side of things and a bunch of drainage work. And then I think pretty much September one started with some of the more intensive holes. So 16 was one of the first ones we blew up because, um, it used to be a kind of a blind tee shot punch bowl concept into a green, but it was only because in 1912, when they rerouted it, you were playing in to a, to an old existing green that was in it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. So you're almost like playing over the right green surrounds of an old hole. So that was one of the most dramatic changes and involved a fair amount of opening of the earth. So we kind of started there, but it was, um, rebuilding really moving a lot of bunkers and rebuilding them all. So we went from 54 bunkers to 89. Um, this picture behind me, uh, is a 1936 aerial from the Corps of Engineers. So one of the ben benefits of being on the Willamette River is when they started doing aerials in the 30s, um, we we have those images. So oh, interesting, because they're yeah. taking photos of the Willamette yeah. River corridor a lot, probably, and the golf course shows up in there. Yeah. And looking at those, comparing them to the aerials that I've seen of the course as it was before the restoration, there's a lot of variety in size of bunkers too. So it's not just an increase in the number of bunkers, but you've got some big ones, you've got some little ones, you've got different kind of quirky arrangements of them. Yeah. And there's, there were, from a technology standpoint, there were some that made no sense in putting them back exactly where they were. So he, he obviously thoughtfully placed them where they would have the, not necessarily the most impact, but the, the greatest variety and make you think about playing the golf course. Um, so yeah, rebuild all bunkers, a lot of fairway expansions, a fair amount of greens expansions, um, rebuilt probably a third of the tees, um, took out a lot of trees, as I mentioned, 300 and I, I think we ended up on 375 from when I first started here till probably so over a two year span. Um, and when I say some of them were massive sequoia trees, and then there were others that were some little fruit tree that nobody even noticed we took out. Um, so a lot, when I say 375 trees, it wasn't 375 mature Doug firs. Uh, there was a lot of a variety. In fact, you could almost debate it was an arboretum, like a lot of classic old places. You could almost see where people, it was a green committee chairman in the you know seventies or eighties said, well, there's an open space over there. How about we go plant this? We don't have this species out here, so yeah, let's go plant one over there. How a lot of uh, how a lot of the work get, got done, or or like you know somebody in the area has a has a sale on a certain kind of tree, and it's like, oh well, hey, almost free, yeah, Might as well, yeah. And that's <laughs> really that. So the predominant species, I'll take a sidebar, but the predominant species, there's a lot of duck firs out here, and then you'll see a lot of sequoias, which are not a native tree. And I believe the story goes that in the late '60s there was a, a lumber guy that owned lumber mill and he a generous donation to the club of whatever it was 150 sequoia trees and i i'm only assuming the thought process is well, we'll plant all these and there's no way all of them will survive you know some of them will just die uh during the summer months and not a one of them died and so you had a ton of sequoia trees all over the place and we maybe took out a third of them let's say so there's still a number of them out here but uh yeah they were all over the place and it you know the other thing that thinking about, and I think this has been talked about ad nauseum, but when you, st in the Pacific Northwest, when you stick a tree on a golf course, 
the only limiting factors that it has in nature, you know, it's not getting fertilized and it's not getting supplemental rain during the summer months. Well, you put it on a golf course and you're fertilizing it. You know, we fertilize rough once a year, but you're fertilizing it and then it's getting supplemental irrigation throughout the year. And so what looks to be a 60 or 70 year old sequoia is really only about 40 years old oh, at this point or 50 years Speeds old up the process being uh, here. Uh, yeah because yeah. this is a place where trees thrive anyway yes and so if you give them more encouragement then they're just gonna sprout they go crazy yeah and so yeah it it was a crazy um improvement to the golf course um and members you know were just so excited about it you know it was just you know they'd gotten used to playing the same old golf course. And it, it was a great, it's still a, it was a great golf course and it obviously is still, but, um, I think just a little more variety in, in the layout. Um, it makes you think a little bit more about getting around the golf course where it wasn't just keep it between the trees and try to avoid the 54 bunkers out there. So it, it was a big improvement. That's for sure. So when Gil was out here, he was a well-established architect. He had done the restoration at Los Angeles Country Club and had gotten a number of really high-profile jobs. But I think it was while he was doing the work here that he got the job at the Rio Olympic course, which really shot him to stardom in the architecture industry. And so he was at an interesting point in his career at Waverly where you got him fairly early on. And he also had some associates and shapers with him who have gone on to have interesting architecture careers of their own. So, you know, from what you observed while they were doing their work, what kind of struck you about their, about their process, about their approach, anything to do with that? I mean, it's just a totally different skill set. I'm not an artistic person. So it always blows my mind where you can see going from a 2d drawing to 3d and you think you understand a lot about it. And then when when they can take it from 2D and they can, they try to explain to you what it's going to look like. But when you go from 2D to 3D, um, it's just, it's pretty incredible. And how just talented operators are, are really incredible. Um, so yeah, Gil was out here, majority of the project. Um, he would kind of do two week stints where he would be here for three or four days every two weeks. Uh, but Kyle France um, was his guy on the ground. Kyle was from Albany, you know, two hours south of town here. And it was you know, Kyle played here, I think in high school or something to that effect. And so it was a good opportunity for him. He had, I think he got a start, uh, career started at Pacific Dunes, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He has a whole story about how he got that job, but basically <laughs> it's almost like he just wandered on the golf course yeah. and was like, I'm, you know, I'm interested in doing this. And they basically brought him on board. Which I, I say this lovingly, but if you know Kyle, that that fits the that fits the bill. I mean, that, that sounds like something he would have done. So yeah, he lived he lived in the cottage, which is in the middle of the golf course, for nine months. Um, and yeah, it was just it was so unique. I'd been around kind of more in house construction projects than anything at previous em employers, but um, this was one where it was you're bringing in outside shapers, and these guys not only are putting the drawings together, but then, uh, turning that into reality. And so it was, it was just, it's really incredible. You know, people that are talented in ways that you are not, it just makes it that much more impressive. Um, and both those guys obviously are, and Kyle, you know, kind of, uh, I think probably, I'm not sure what year he did mid pines, maybe 14, 15. It, yes. It was a little layered. It, it wasn't, it wasn't that long after this job, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so he, uh, he kind of went on, kind of hung out down in the Carolinas there for the last number of years and is continuing to get a uh, good combination of a couple of new builds and some restoration work along the way. So yeah, it was, it was fun working with those guys. Um, Jim Wagner, who's obviously Gil's design partner, I think he made two trips out. Um, but it, you know, Florida to Portland is not, there's not a lot of direct flights. So right. yeah, it would, basically Kyle was the guy on the ground and Gil would, make his visits every once, uh, every two weeks. And it would, but it was a lot of fun. I don't know why it cracks me up, but it sort of cracks me up thinking about Kyle Franz or really any shaper living in that cottage on the golf course and working on the golf course. Talk about like no work life separation. You know, you're, you're right there literally in the middle of it. This cottage is, is right next to the 10th green to mm -hmm. give people an idea. 
and it's uh i mean it's a lovely oh yeah place i'd imagine it's really fun to to stay there it it was so it was originally greenskeeper's cottage probably oh i'm gonna guess it was built in the 30s or so uh two guys before me uh, a guy named rich schwabauer he lived there from 68 to 98 raised two kids in the house in fact one of his sons sells this equipment what a place to grow up that would be crazy. I mean, that, yes, it would be awesome. But at the same time, R- his son, Rich, would tell me stories about, you know, somebody didn't like something was going on on 10 Green. They'd knock on the front door and you're like, well, that's that's kind of a problem. <laughs> it reminds me, you know, I, I was a boarding school teacher before I took this job. It reminds me of that where you just have people kind of like knocking on your door yeah. all night long. And so uh, the his uh, the gentleman that was here in between Rich Schwabauer and myself, I'm only assuming, you know there was probably a conversation with his wife and she said, you're crazy. If you think we're living in the middle of the golf course or something like that. And so, um, the, the it was turned into intern housing, which I don't even, I don't even know how to describe what that house looked like when I got here. It was, it was <laughs> not good. Um, and so when we started kind of entertaining, we we're getting down to logistics of Gil being out here and this, that, and the other, and the GM at the time, Scott Julian, Gil was obviously going to rent an apartment somewhere in town and, you know, the sat in the other. And well, Scott said, well, why don't we just put some money into that thing and they can live there and then we can turn it into a member rental option. So that's long story short, that's what's happened. Um, it really only gets rented for weddings, you know, that kind of thing. But every once in a while, somebody will bring three buddies into town and they stay out there. And it's, it is very unique. It's a, it's a great setting. You're, you know, whatever that is, 75 yards from the bank of the river. Um, yeah, it's, it's a neat, neat experience but it is right in the middle of the golf course. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and good luck next week. I think it's going to be a great championship. No, I'm, we're looking forward to it. It'll be very interesting to see, you know, we talked about that discrepancy and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the low half of the field does uh, to this. Hopefully it defends itself pretty well, but yeah, we're looking forward to it. That's for sure. I think it, w- it will defend itself. It defends itself against me pretty well when I, when I have a chance to come out here and play. So I, I know that for sure. This episode of the Friday golf podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One big thing that you can do to support Friday Golf is to sign up for our membership, Club TFE. Go to thefriday.com slash membership to see what it's all about. One of the things that we do in Club TFE is a blog where we post new content every week, including a weekly course profile, a weekly preview of that week's televised competitive golf called What to Watch For, and something that we released just yesterday, design notebook. This is a new feature in Club TFE, and it's basically a rundown of news, inside information, scuttlebutt, opinions, insights on what's going on in golf course architecture today. We're pretty excited about it. We're having a lot of fun producing these articles, and the members seem to be enjoying them. So that's in Club TFE, and again, you can check it out at thefriedegg.com slash membership. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon.